Okay, we'd like to welcome you back to uh, part two of our current event and weekly Bible study for March 14th, 2011. Next article is Street Preachers Murdered in Florida. National media silence. This is by Worthy News. Uh, a religious liberty group warned Saturday, February 6th, that anti-Christian hostility is getting increasingly deadly. In the United States, after two street preachers were shot and killed, by a teenager who apparently opposed their message. The increasing demonization of Christians in our culture makes it makes some feel it's open season on Christians, said Gary Cass of the Christian Anti-Defamation Commission. Uh, Taiti Sufra, uh, age 24, and Stephen Ocean, and there's two pictures of them on, on the PDF that I have here, were shot and killed late Saturday, January 30th, in Boynton Beach, in the state of Florida, where they evangelized after meeting 18-year-old Jara Woody, uh, local police said. They witnessed to Woody for 15 minutes when he got a phone call and he told the preachers he had to go, added the commission, which closely monitored the case. As they walked away, Woody suddenly started walking back toward them. Sufra walked up to greet him and was killed with a shotgun blast at point-blank range. When Ocean ran, he was shot in the back. After he fell, Woody shot him in the head, execution style. I mean, this is unbelievable. Woody was detained Wednesday, February 3rd, and is charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Bail was reportedly denied to him. Cass complained about the lack of national interest in the national media. Quote, as of today, there are no national news organizations reporting this vicious murder of two innocent Christian men. Why? Cass said, I'll ask this, if two Muslims or two feminists or two homosexuals were murdered, wouldn't the media be all over it? Oh, you better believe it. These were two fine young black Christian men who were shot by another black man for their Christian faith, yet the media does not even seem to care. Man, what a double standard. Unbelievable. He described the case as an ominous sign of times that Christians are being shot on the streets and in our churches. Last year... Jim Pullen was killed while holding a pro-life sign in front of his granddaughter's Owasso, Michigan High School. Reverend Fred Winters was murdered while preaching in the pulpit uh, in Maryville, Illinois. Increasingly, we see Christian ministers threatened and Christian churches terrorized and vandalized for their stand on marriage. Now, when Christians gather for worship, they must have armed security. So, I wanted just I wanted to give that some press or news or whatever you want to call it. I had no idea about this. I hadn't even heard about it. And, and I, I saw it. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It should have been front page news. But, you know, they don't care about Christians. You know, they're, they're not even going to report on this type of stuff. <sighs> Just unbelievable. But you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ knows their sacrifice. You know? I mean, he, he knows. And, and um... You know, God bless them and their families. You know, but I just wanted to—I wanted to mention this. I thought it was absolutely, totally news. And you know, not to say all the other Christians that are dying all over the planet on a daily basis—that isn't newsworthy. There's, there's no way I can report on it all. Um, but that one, I just, you know, thought it was something that needed to be said. Um, next article is TSA now wants to scan and harvest. Your DNA. This is by Mike Adams. Now he's not a Christian, okay? The way he wrote this, you know, is not really. But he, 
he gets the point across. Um, this is from Natural News. As if it's not enough that the TSA wants to fuel you up at the airport, now they're experimenting with rapid results DNA scanners that can scan and analyze your DNA using a drop of saliva. Spit at the TSA agent who is molesting you, in other words, and they can use that saliva to scan your DNA and then store it in a government database. Why would they want to do that? We can only imagine. Remember the story about hospitals secretly taking blood samples of babies and handing them over to federal government to use in a national uh, genetic database? And I, there's a link here if you don't believe that. They, they've got this. Uh, the government routinely steals genetic material from people for its own nefarious purposes, as does the pharmaceutical industry. For example, the medical industry's so-called HELA cells, which have been exploited for decades by vaccine and drug companies, were harvested and stolen decades ago from Henrietta Lacks, a lady named Henrietta Lacks, without her permission or consent. Hella cells are the foundation of hundreds of billions of dollars of profit for Big Pharma. And they are all based on DNA theft perpetrated by the pharmaceutical industry. And another thing, I said before, a lot of this stuff seems to boil back to the United Nations. And a lot of what we report on also seems to boil back to DNA. And DNA, the corrupting of our DNA, or the DNA of plants, or the DNA of animals, or the harvesting of our DNA, or the altering of our DNA. The corrupting of the seed of mankind. Which is what Satan's always been about. He's always been about trying to corrupt the seed, particularly of, of mankind, of, of, of humans. Okay? But also of, the, of you know, God's creation in general. He, the, the best example of that is Genesis 6. When fallen angels came down and procreated with women. And they had this race of... Nephilim, or giants, fallen ones that were in the land. And, and it was so bad that God had to destroy the whole world with a flood. Things became so corrupted. It's no different today. And um, there's an obsession with big pharma and big government about people's DNA. It's a very common theme to you see in sci-fi movies and these types of things. DNA harvesting, DNA databanks, secret DNA Databanks where they're looking for particular DNA profiles, and um, you know you get into all the black projects that go on behind closed doors, and I believe a lot of that information is being used there. Now that TSA is experimenting with portable DNA scanners, their real agenda becomes apparent. They will use airport security checkpoints to harvest DNA from the public in order to build up their government biobank database of stolen DNA. So this is another thing you, you, you have to deal with now if you, if you want to fly, or at least in some places. Of course, they will assure the public that they aren't storing the DNA information, and also that the naked body scanners don't store their images, even though that's been proven totally false. Oh yeah, and that TSA security procedures make air travel safer, and that's been to totally proven total garbage. Our source for the story is a report called The Genetic Pat-Down, published by TheDaily.com. The story reveals that a company called NetBio manufactures the portable DNA scanning devices. The same story also reveals that TSA rolled out these DNA screening devices without even checking with the Privacy Committee of the Department of Homeland Security. Jim Harper, who serves on that committee, is even quoted in the story saying, we're plunging into the unknown here. Uh, but are we actually... If it's not unknown. History has seen it before. It's called Nazi Germany. 
It's called the police state approach to security. The use of power of big government to target the people as if they were criminals. And then force them at gunpoint to consent to illegal searches in violations of their privacy. And do it all under the name of homeland security and keep the American people afraid by terrorizing them with occasional scary sounding security alerts based on staged terrorism events that are often planned, organized, and carried out by our own government. The government agents that carry these kind of evil schemes are the modern day equivalent of Hitler's secret police. You don't think the name Homeland Security was chosen by mere coincidence, do you? The Homeland Security Newswire publication reveals that in 2009 the DHS awarded grant money to a Virginia firm to develop a portable DNA testing device. A DHS spokesperson named Christopher Miles revealed the purpose of the device, explaining it had applications in mass casualty situations, reunification of family members following mass evacuations, identification of missing persons, rapid processing of crime scene and suspect DNA and various scientific and educational uses. Interesting, isn't it? Back in 2009, they never mentioned screening the DNA of air travelers at airports, but today, barely two years later, suddenly it's no longer for reunification of family members, but rather the harvesting of DNA from air passengers, almost certainly without their consent. After all, since when did TSA ever ask for your permission to do anything? And what's the limit for all the privacy-invading searchers anyway? Where does it end? Can the TSA demand your blood, your saliva, or your sperm for its tests? Is it going to be a condition of flying that you hand over bodily fluids to U.S. government so they can determine whether you're a genetic terrorist or if you have that genetic profile? Hitler would have loved the DNA scanners for his eugenics programs, of course. It would have provided a simple scientific way to determine who was of Jewish descent and therefore who got loaded up and sent away in the rail cars. Fortunately for the world, Hitler didn't have the technology to conduct DNA searches of people, but Janet Napolitano does. And she's already proved that she will go to great lengths to spy on the American people. Uh, just see if that if you see something, say something, garbage. I'll tell you where this is all probably heading. Before too much longer, we're going to see calls for global population controls that deny reproduction rights to those who don't fit genetic profiles preferred by the world governments. Genetic screening will be used to identify and then sterilize both men and women who don't fit the correct genetic profile. These, steriliz these sterilizations will m be most likely delivered as vaccine shots. Oh yeah, and there's going to be a whole lot more in there than just you being sterilized tainted, altered DNA, and then all the other garbage that they put in there. And also, implantable um, uh, or microchips of a... They've already got... Hitachi's already got microchip dust. Okay? Whether they're using a large microchip or microchip dust in the, in the vaccine shots, I mean, you got that going on. <laughs> Not a good scenario inside your body. Uh, this is a move that has already been perfectly described by Bill Gates himself. Who said he said at this last that TED conference that he had that vaccines are the key technology for population control and reducing world population by ten to fifteen percent. Of course, I think his percentages there were were um, very very low because he didn't want to come out and say you know fifty sixty percent. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, in fact, has been hard at work on sterilization technology called temporary castration that renders men infertile for six months at a time. Now, all these stories that I'm quoting here, there's a link to each one if you want to go and explore this further in the PDF for 3 2011 on contendingfortruth.com. 
But who, sh- who should you castrate? It's tough to know. Unless, of course, you have DNA scanners set up at a government-run security checkpoints. A, quote, bad DNA scan earns you a court-mandated st- sterilization vaccination injection right on the spot. Now, listen, I, this may seem far-fetched, but, I mean, if you had told somebody five years ago about all this garbage going on at airports with the TSA naked body scanners and the pornographic the pornographic scanners and then the these uh, um, sexual molestation pat-downs where they're literally going under your underwear, would you have believed that five years ago? Well, where does it all end? I mean, if you let this continue unabated, this is where it will end up. Uh, think that's fiction. They're already using similar tactics to draw blood from drivers at DUI checkpoints. Yeah. They're already forcing DUI, uh, and I know it's in Florida, uh, blood draws for people they suspect uh, is are driving under the influence. Uh, this whole scenario with the DNA scanners and population control eugenics won't happen right away, of course. It's a step-by-step process, ratcheting up the police state one degree at a time like a boiling a live frog. With the recent passenger molestation searches introduced by the TSA, the government was trying to determine just how far they could go without people rioting in response. It turns out that most people are so brainwashed, so devoid of critical thinking skills, and so ignorant of their own rights, that they will do practically anything the government tells them to do. So don't be surprised if coming soon is the government's forced extraction of bodily fluids for DNA scanning. Now, granted, this is written from a very sarcastic secular standpoint. Mike Adams is not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Again, I would send you back to the Bible verses I quoted at the very start of the study to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. But he did do a good job presenting, you know, possible scenarios and and things that we could, uh, could be happening in, in, you know, the near future, unfortunately. Uh, Next clip is going to be, it's going to be one of the longer clips I've ever played, but it's really awesome. I mean, this is just awesome. It's a man sees vision of hell. This is a man who is now a, I believe, a Baptist preacher. You're going to be here quoting here. And this is from a really good, an excerpt from a really good uh, um, uh, video on this particular subject. Probably one of the best testimonials on it. Um, And it's um, it's amazing, and I'm just going to play it and let you listen to it, and I think it'll be a blessing to you. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and roll this, and uh, you'll hear the um, you'll hear his voice, and um, you, you, if you go to the PDF that I'll have for this teaching, you can actually go and watch. You'll, you'll see him talking, and they have some like video of actually. Uh, kind of dramatizations of what's going on here. But uh, let's go ahead and roll this now. Hear the voice of one that has heard the screams. This may be your only chance to safely go to hell and back. In 1972, my life was uh, broken. I was... uh, a drug addict. I was uh, a criminal. This is a man named Roland Reagan. My family was broken. My wife had filed for divorce a couple of times. My children were afraid of me. I 
really couldn't hold a job. My mental state was terrible. And it was in that uh, frame of life that I took my six-year-old son one night and went down to a little market going inside to purchase some things. And on the way in to that market, I met a gentleman coming out the door and an argument erupted. And uh, before I knew it, I had just hit him, knocked him down, and he fell into a stack of bottles. The bottles bursted. And uh, immediately he leaped up with a broken bottle and began to stab at me. I lifted my left arm to try to stop the, the blow, and the bottle actually severed the biceps muscle, the uh, major arteries in my arm, and I was bleeding to death in just a matter of seconds. But full of anger and hatred and rage, I kept fighting and kept bleeding. My little son was screaming. He was hysterical. But the man that ran the store came over and said, if, if you don't get to a hospital, you'll bleed to death in just a few minutes. So he actually took me in my own automobile to the hospital. And when we entered the emergency room, I was barely conscious. And as the uh, medical attendants began to work on me, I could hear their voices. And I could hear them saying, we can't help him. He'll have to be transported to another hospital. Probably will lose the arm. And as they loaded me into an ambulance, my wife had arrived by that time and got in the ambulance with me. But as they pulled out of the parking lot of that hospital, a young paramedic looked down into my face. And I could barely see him. I was so weak. But he said, Sir, you need Jesus Christ. I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know what he was talking about. So my reaction to that was to begin cursing. And uh, again, he stated to me, you need Jesus. And as he was talking to me, it, it appeared like the ambulance literally exploded in flames. I, I thought it had actually blown up. It filled with smoke. And immediately I was moving through that smoke as if through a tunnel. And after some period of time coming out of the smoke and out of the darkness, I began to hear the voices of a multitude of people screaming and groaning and crying. But as I looked down, the sensation was looking down upon a, a, a volcanic opening and seeing fire and smoke and, and people inside of this burning place screaming and crying. They were burning, but they weren't burning up. They weren't being consumed. And then the sensation of moving downward into this. He was thrashing, just thrashing about, you know, and moaning and groaning. and It was like there was a battle going on. I wasn't a Christian at the time, and I didn't even know anything about spiritual battles. But it was scary to me in the fact that I could feel it. I could feel it was like light and darkness. It was like he was fighting against something. And I didn't know what, 
But now I know, you know, he was seeing the vision of hell. But, but the most terrible part of it, I began to recognize many of the people that I was seeing in these flames. As if a close-up lens on a camera was bringing their faces close to me, I could, I could see their features and see the agony and the pain and the frustration. And a number of them began to call my name and said, Ronnie, don't come to this place. There's no way out. There's no escape. If you come here, there's no way out. And I looked into the faces of, of one that had died in a robbery attempt who had been shot to death and bled to death on the sidewalk. And I looked in the face of two others that had died drunk in an automobile accident. And I looked into the face of others that had died of drug overdoses that we had partied together and, and the agony and the pain. But I believe the most painful part of it, painful part of it, was the loneliness. And the depression was so heavy that there was no hope. There was no escape. There was no way out of this place. And the smell was like uh, sulfur, like an electric welder. And the, the stench was, was terrible. And as I looked at this, I had seen people killed. I had been involved in fights where people were killed. I'd done time in prison for manslaughter myself. I grew up basically in a reform school and in a jail cell. I was beat on mercifully as a child by a father that had temper problems and alcohol problems. I was a runaway at 12 years old, and I felt like there was nothing in this world that could frighten me. My life was wrecked. My marriage was wrecked. My health was wrecked. But now I'm seeing something that literally scares me to death because I don't understand it. And as I'm looking into this, this pit, this place of fire and screams and, and torment, I just fade out into blackness. And when I open my eyes, I'm in a hospital room in Knoxville, Tennessee, my wife is sitting by. There have been uh, multiple stitches put in my body. My arm was spared. Uh, there were almost a hundred stitches. And I, I looked in the face of my wife. And I wasn't concerned about where I was or anything around me. All I could visualize was what I had just seen. He had this funny look on his face and it was a terrifying look and he said he said I don't really know what's happened to me but he said I've been in a terrible place and I kept telling him you're in the hospital you've, you've been in the hospital all along and he kept saying no he said I've been in another place he said he said I don't know exactly what it was but he said it was terrible it's a terrible place part two I could still hear the screams. I could still smell the terrible smell. I could still feel the heat. And I could still hear the voices of people that I'd known through the years screaming for me to go back. And through the days to come, I 
tried every way to get that out of my mind. I tried to get drunk. I could not get drunk. I tried to get stoned. I could not get stoned. I tried everything that I could to get this off my mind, and I could not. One morning, several months later, I, I came home to where my wife was. I'd been trying to get drunk. I couldn't. And when I walked in the house, went back to the bedroom, the light was burning. My wife was sitting up in bed, and she had a large book open on her lap. And she looked up at me, and her face was literally shining. And she said, Ronnie, tonight I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And she didn't have to say a lot to me. Our life had been filled with, with agony. She grew up in Chicago. Her father was a bartender on the south side of Chicago. She knew nothing about God or church or religion. And the pain in her face, the wrinkles that I'd put in her face with abuse and violence and alcoholism and drug addiction, being gone for months at a time and her and the kids not knowing where I was, her face had changed. The wrinkles were literally gone. The smile had replaced sorrow and agony. And she looked at me and she said, Jesus, save me tonight. And she said, would you go with me and hear about this man called Jesus? And I thought for a second and I thought, I've tried everything else in life. Nothing has worked for me. The people that I love most of all, my wife and my children, I'm, I'm terrible to them. And I agreed to go with her. And a couple of weeks later on a Sunday morning, a matter of fact, the date was November the 2nd, 1972. Just before 12 o'clock a.m., a minister stood to, to read from the Bible. I was sitting in the back of the building. I didn't know anything out of the Bible. I did not know how to act in church. But the minister stood to read from the Bible, and he read from the Gospel of John. And he began to read these words that said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When he said the Lamb, he had my attention. It wouldn't have meant anything to me, any other passage. But when he mentioned the Lamb, he had this hard-hearted sinner's attention. Because when I was nine years old, a very poor child in the mountains of eastern Tennessee with a father that only knew anger and, and abuse and alcohol. A neighbor had given me a baby lamb. And I had to walk two miles to catch the school bus. And coming through her yard, she stopped me one day and said, Son, I have a gift for you. And she showed me this baby lamb. And I took that lamb home with me. It was my friend. The only friend I felt like I had. And it was uh, such a friend in days and weeks to come. It, it followed me and it would, it would meet me when I got off the school bus and came walking through the woods and the fields. One evening as I came in, the lamb was missing. And I heard my father cursing and screaming 
And I looked up to the side of the house. Mary was working on, on an old model car, changing a flat tar by hand the old way. And I tried to walk around because I didn't want to be cursed. And I tried to, to bypass him. And when I got on the other side of the car, I looked down, and there was my lamb with blood all over the white wool and a tar tool sticking in its body. The lamb had come around just wanting to be curious. And in a drunken fit of anger, my father had plunged the tire arm through that lamb's body. And when I saw my lamb, my friend, dead, I began to scream as a nine-year-old child. I run into the woods screaming, He's killed my lamb. He's killed the lamb. And at nine years old, hatred and violence took my life, possessed my life. And from that point, I was never, never, ever the same. By 12 years old, I was a runaway. I was in the juvenile system, arrested time after time after time. There was no respect for authority. I hated anyone that represented authority over me. And by the time I was 15 years old, I had been in jail for car theft, for stealing. And at 15 years old, I was sentenced for manslaughter, involved in a car accident that had taken life and crippled others for life. Wondering at that time if life ever would hold anything for me. But when that minister mentioned the Lamb, he had my attention. And he said, Jesus Christ is God's Lamb. And he died and he shed his blood that whosoever will could have a new start, could be forgiven, could start over. That morning, as I stood to try to leave the building, I thought, I don't want anybody to see me cry. I've not cried since I was nine years old. I'm not afraid of any living thing on this earth, and no one's going to see me cry. But I turned to leave, but I started down the aisle toward the front of that building. And my prayer was this. I didn't know the sinner's prayer. I didn't know the Roman road of salvation. But my prayer was this. God, if you exist, and Jesus, if you are God's Lamb, please, please kill me or cure me. I don't want to live anymore. I'm not a husband. I'm not a father. I'm no good. And at that instant, it was like the darkness and the blackness left my life. And the tears began to flow. And for the first time since I was nine years old, the tears did run. And the guilt left my life. And the violence and the anger and the hatred left my life. And Jesus Christ became Lord and Savior of my life that morning. And since that time, I didn't know what would happen. But God healed my mind. My memory, 
the drug addiction, the alcoholism was instantaneously gone, delivered. And from that moment, I knew that I had to tell the story of what had happened to me. My life was only spared to tell others about the place that I had seen and the hope of Jesus Christ to save mankind from this terrible fate. God bless him. God bless him. I can't hardly get through that. <laughs> that is awesome. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um, God bless him. I just can't listen to that and not cry. Oh, praise the Lord Jesus Christ for the saints. I praise the Lord Jesus Christ for my listeners. God bless them. I pray to God that he bless every Christian on this planet. And the remnant, Lord. What a testimony. <laughs> Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. What a testimony. Okay. Uh, I had to kind of go off air there for a few minutes. Uh, anyway, that's a tremendous uh, testimony. There's many other... Um, testimonials like that in the video uh, and I'm sure if you do a little bit of digging you can find that but I do give you the two links to that and then also my teaching that I've done on uh, salvation and uh, just amazing amazing praise the Lord Jesus Christ and I also then give you the link to my teaching I did on uh, <clears throat> near-death experiences uh, where in the sec it's really a two part and the second part was focusing on a famous medical doctor that had supposedly proven from his research and near death experiences that there is no judgment after death regardless of your beliefs only acceptance and loves this is the kind of damnable heresy that Satan loves to propagate and undoubtedly will take millions to hell see th this whole thing about these near death experiences I mean you know that's a tremendous, <coughs> excuse me, tool of Satan to uh, take a lot of people to hell. I dare say millions. Uh, and I get into that in this particular teaching. I give you a link there, uh, and you'll uh, we're going to look at that from a biblical perspective. Uh, on kind of a related note, um, one of my listeners is uh, actually works for um, Reformers Unanimous, and um, he sent me some links regarding Reformers Unanimous. Uh, I'll just read you some of the verbiage here. If you're looking for the cure to any addiction that's enslaving you, Reformers Unanimous can help you to find true freedom. I was completely freed from a crippling addiction and personally know more than 100 people who are free and remain free. 
Reformers Unanimous has helped thousands of people find victory with an 82% success rate. <coughs> Excuse me. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't even come close to that number. Uh, and they give you a, I give you some links here, uh, some videos you can watch. Uh, if you would like some video resources to send to listeners who have addictions, here is a link to one of the main videos I had a privilege to work on. That gives a full picture of the ministry of Reformers Unanimous. He's actually the one, Matt, is actually the one that does uh, a lot of their um, videos. I mean, he's gifted uh, videographer. I mean, these videos are just top notch. So, um, him and his wife are both my listeners, and I, I um, we kind of got you know connected via the uh, email and these types of things. And uh, yeah, well, what a blessing that's been. Um, also here's another video that talks about the men and women's homes here in Rockford. If you feel led to send it to someone who needs to go to one of our homes, that's more, I guess, kind of a different level. They've actually got homes. Um, and he gives his email here, um, that, um, I'm forwarding as well. So again, that'll be in the PDF for, uh, March 14th, 2011. And the next article is entitled Celebrities to Come Together. <coughs> Excuse me. For today, I am... It's called Today I Am Muslim Too. And this is straight from their website. So this is promoting it. On Sunday, March 6th... I, I just couldn't believe this when I read it. A broad coalition of over 75 interfaith Nonprofit, governmental, and civil liberties groups will come together in Times Square. Governmental, civil liberties, interfaith. You know, I mean, wow. They're going to come together on 42nd Street, 7th Avenue. And again, this has already happened. In support of equitable civil rights for the Today I Am Muslim 2 rally. Taking place in response to an upcoming congressional Hearings led by Peter King, rally goers will stand together against bigotry caused by anxiety, misinformation, and ignorance to show Congress a united American community which seeks to strengthen and not dilute our bonds of friendship and mutual trust. And the thing is, is, is this is everything that they're saying here is the exact polar opposite of reality. They're going to stand together against bigotry? That That's what Islam is. It is the one of the, the most quintessential essence essences of, of bigotry that you will ever see. I mean, there's Muslims and there's infidels, according to the Quran. And the infidels are either need to be converted or slain. That's what the, the Quran says to do. I mean, if that's not bigotry, I don't know what is. And then cause, uh, standing together against bigotry caused by anxiety, misinformation, and ignorance. There's no misinformation. There, there is a misinformation and ignorance, but not if you can go straight to their supposed holy book and just see what a fundamental Islamic adherent believes. You know, they're the ones that want to put out misinformation and, and, and create ignorance about Islam. Because there's so much they have to hide. So much. And we've, we've reported on this in great detail in many studies that we've done. Organizers of this rally believe one can be a loyal Muslim as well as a loyal American without conflict. That's a total lie from the pit of hell. You can't do both. You either have to, you know, and, and I mean, I'm talking about from a, 
uh, a standpoint of, okay, if you're a loyal Muslim, there is no way you could be a loyal American. It is an impossibility. Your allegiance is primarily to the Quran and Allah and whatever imam you sit under. Okay, that's where your allegiance is to, not America in any way, shape, or form. They are bent on destroying and infiltrating America. That's just part of the of the infiltrating strategy that that is Islam, and it's always been. As invested Americans, we acknowledge the important work of Congressional Committee on Homeland Security, said Russell Simmons, chairman of Rush Communications. However, we're concerned with the hearings will send a wrong message and alienate, alienate American Muslims instead of partnering with them. Why would you want to partner with this most wicked, evil death cult? It's not that I don't want them to get saved, but you're not going. None of them are going to get saved by partnering with them. That's for sure. That's what they want. That's exactly what they want. Why? So that they can infiltrate. I mean, if you're partnered with them, then they can pretty much, you know. Whatever parameters you're operating under, then they become their parameters. Um, and then this, this goes on to say, potentially putting their lives at risk by inciting fear and enmity. You know, all you got to do is look at their at their at the the quotes from their their imams and at, at their at the Quran, at their own supposed holy writings. It is purely based on violence and death and killing and hatred. And lies. And, and I mean, the way they treat women. It's in the hypocrisy of it all. Because they, they try to say with this religion of peace. And, and there's nothing farther from the truth. You, you couldn't have any statement so far from the truth. It's such a, it's so based on lies. Going further, Rabbi, I can't believe a rabbi would be part of this, but Rabbi Mark Shearer, president of the Foundation for Ethnic Understanding, has suggested that the hearing should be broadened in such a way that other ethnic communities and faith communities can attest to the tremendous contribution and solidarity that American Muslims have for our country. Can you imagine a rabbi getting on board with this? You talk about a rabbi that is spineless and lukewarm. I can't even comprehend that. Then it goes on to say, so far here is an incredible list of, I put in, reprobate supporters. Diddy, whoever that is, Susan Sarandon, Common. I love these one names. You know, I guess they're they're transcending two names now. We they're just one name. Common, Kim Kardashian, Swizz Beats, Jermaine Dupree, Lorraine Bracco, Q-Tip. He's he's whoever that is. It's my favorite. I mean, the name says it all. Just kidding. Uh, John Legend, Heather Graham. Jules San, Santana, Rachel Roy, Jim Jones, Kelly Benson, Ben Simon, Reverend Al Sharpton, oh good, Reverend Run, Reverend Jesse Jackson. The list is growing every day. It's just unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. And, um, I give you three teachings I've done, links to three teachings I've done, Islamic Religion Exposed, Part 1 and 2, and the Double Face of Islam. Uh, Because, you know, this is a death cult that just needs to be exposed. The next one is uh, a video clip we're going to be watching on a Malaysian Muslim concentration camp for 
Christians. Uh, second thought, we're getting near the end of this part. So I'm going to go ahead and stop this part and we'll go to part three. And that should be our third and final part to wrap things up. God bless you.